0: While last week we discussed our commitment to the shared faith of all Christians, there are many matters of doctrine that are not as assured as the gospel itself. Meaning there is a difference of interpretation. There are points, therefore, of disagreement and discussion within the umbrella of the gospel that we discussed last week. And that's what we're going to get into tonight. Where we stand on... Not unimportant, but less important matters. And that is not to say these things are not insignificant. In fact, some of these are not essential for salvation, but as I explain them, you'll see that if you move on one of these, you're in serious trouble. And every generation has its points that sometimes the church is surprised that this has to be a point of emphasis for us. But it forces us to hone and sharpen our thought and our theology on that. But these things are not essential for salvation. And it's very common to say things like, oh, it's a shame the church is so divided. And I would agree in many cases. On the other hand, Paul said that it's good that there are divisions among you so that you can know who is real and who is not. And I think beyond that, there are certain points of interpretation in the Scripture that are so significant that it really would be difficult to have common fellowship with one another all the time, because it, just, it drives your philosophy of ministry, it drives your behavior, not anything like morality, but the way you would pray and the way you would go about evangelism and, and so forth. So as long as we can have fellowship with each other, still, it's not such a bad thing that we are distinct in this way, because these are not small matters. So everything we're going to talk about tonight is not essential to be saved. It is essential to be Calvary Chapel and I'm going to say also these are our tenets of which I personally am solidly convinced. I know it's easy to say things like well yeah that's the party line and we stick to it but you know there's some other options out there. That's not me. There may be some guys that are like that. I am all in on this. Not only was I raised in it but I have done my homework and done my study and I'm still convinced. So let's go ahead and go through these things and I want to begin by explaining Calvary Chapel's basic theological approach. And I'm going to use our first main point to explain what I mean here. So the, the fundamental, I guess, plank of Calvary Chapel is that we teach verse by verse through the Bible. And in so doing, we are exposed naturally to the balance and the tension that the Bible has within itself, that we, be, we get a very good sense of what the priorities of Scripture are for itself. For example, how much does it actually talk about a given topic? And so what this brings us to is what you would call a natural biblical theology as opposed to a rigid systematic theology. What's the difference? Systematic theology is trying its best to lay out all of Christian doctrine in a systematic way. So we organize it by theology proper, the doctrine of God, Christology, the doctrine of Christ, and so on. There is nothing wrong with that. Biblical theology, not that systematic is unbiblical, but biblical theology is an attempt to express theology the way the Bible expresses it without necessarily trying to make all the pieces fit together as nicely as we'd like. So we're not opposed to systematic theology, but I I think this will make more sense as I explain it. That Because we teach through the Word so often, sometimes it's hard for us to stick to a system when that's not quite the way the Bible portrays it. So we prefer to let the Bible speak and balance itself and allow the tension to remain in certain cases rather than impose a system upon it. Let me give you the best example I can of this, which also allows us to e- explain how we, how we land on this first subject, which is that of soteriology. Soteriology means the study of salvation. Let's just get right to it. This, this is Calvinism versus Arminianism. <laughs> They're like, oh, now I know what you're talking about. Yeah, all right. Calvinists, if you're not familiar, are firm proponents of God's sovereignty in salvation. To the point that many of them would say that there really is no role for man in salvation. That it is God from start to finish, very strong emphasis on predestination and election, the foreknowledge of God and so on. There's more to it, but I'm just summarizing for our purposes tonight. And secondly, you have Arminian theology, which is the other side of that coin, you might say, which wants to very strongly emphasize the will of man in that process, to emphasize the decision that is made and the continuing decision that must be made. They are less comfortable discussing predestination and things like that and more comfortable describing the wide-open invitation to all people to be saved. Well, we, as Calvary Chapel, would land somewhere in the middle of that. And many people have accused me, in particular, of, that's a cop-out. You've got to pick a side. Well, like I said, not systematic theology, biblical theology. The Bible itself does not land firmly on one of those sides or the other. And, to be fair, the best of Calvinists and the best of Armenian theology understands this. But they probably would take a stronger line than we would. We believe in the sovereignty of God, obviously. We believe that God is the worker of salvation. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. We, We hands down believe that. The doctrines of grace can sometimes be a euphemism for Calvinism. Well, we believe in grace, absolutely. I never want to minimize God's role in salvation, Because it it is God, right? God is the one that sent His Son, who died. God is the one who draws us to salvation and regenerates us. And grace will lead us home, as the song says, right? However, we also acknowledge the will of man as an important part of the mystery of salvation. For example, John 3, 16. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And the point I emphasize there is that, yes, God has done everything that is necessary, but there is still an incumbent responsibility upon men to believe and to receive what God has done. There are many places that talk about the responsibility that we have. Joshua told the people, choose you this day whom you will serve, for example. The Bible presents a tension between these two things. You can find some Psalms and some prophetic passages where where God is is the only issue that is being discussed, right? That man makes his plans, but God steers his heart, right? God hardened Pharaoh's heart, passages like that. But at the same time, the Bible is abundantly clear that God is not responsible for your sin. That's on you. (laughs) That's that's very clear, And, and again, most Calvinists, if not all, will agree with that. But we also believe, and we see in Scripture, that man has the choice, the legitimate choice, to sin or to obey. In the Garden of Eden, God told Adam and Eve, here's all the trees, don't eat this one. And some versions of theology will say, well, then free will ended after that. Well, no, because the next chapter, what does God tell Cain? Sin is crouching at the door, but you must rule over it. right? Moses said, I'm presenting before you today, life and death. And it's almost one of the fundamental Premises of the Bible is that we have a choice and we make the wrong choice over and over and over again. And yet man cannot save himself. We agree with that, do we not? Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. I think the best way to demonstrate this balance is in Scripture itself. Turn to Acts chapter 2, if you will. I wanted to to read the first gospel presentation. Because I think in the Bible... We see this. The Bible doesn't spend a lot of time trying to reason this out, except for maybe places like Romans 9 and and some places in Hebrews, I think. But most of the time, the Bible just goes about the business of evangelism. That's that's what biblical theology is, right? Systematic theology, as you're turning there, would be to read this passage and try to extract the propositional truth and then try to organize those. and, And that, of course, is fine. But let's read Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. Peter has just preached the gospel. You crucified the Lord of glory. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I think this is a great picture that would give a Calvinist and an Armenian both some trouble. Look what he says. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Right? That, that's, well, that's Calvinism right there. That is hardcore sovereignty. God has called you. But then what did they say? What shall we do? Peter doesn't say, you don't do anything. It's all about, he says, repent and be baptized. He gives them a mandate. He even says in verse 40, save yourselves. This is not implying that you can by your own effort save yourself. But it is very clearly saying God's done everything that is needed to be done. Now you need to come and repent and respond to what God has done. So I think you see that. There's both of these things that are kind of tugging at one another. And depending on the passage, one or the other will be emphasized. When there are folks that are living in rampant sin, the writer will come in and say, y'all need to get your act together because you've got a responsibility. If there are those that are questioning whether or not God really loves them and really cares, the apostle's going to come in and say, God has chosen you and saved you and adopted you, and he's the one that's going to save you. That's biblical theology. I'd say any system that doesn't maintain this tension in some way is not entirely biblical. For example, we don't believe in what's called limited atonement, that Jesus didn't die for everybody, only for those who would be saved. Or, for example, we don't believe that you can lose your salvation, like you lose your car keys, And that you have to die in your deathbed wondering if you've repented for enough things to be saved. Both of those things misrepresent the scripture, I believe. Calvert Chapel is willing to maintain the mystery while giving God his due and yet calling men to their own responsibility. I could say at the very least that is how the Bible presents it. You've got something you need to do and God has done everything that he needed to do and then we can have a lively discussion about how best to reconcile those two things. So that lays out our methodology, so to speak, and it also answers one of the first big questions. So let's move on to the second one here. We just talked about soteriology, let's talk about pneumatology. This is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So where does Calvary Chapel stand on these matters? Well Calvary Chapel is a charismatic association. I do need to clarify what that term means. Because there is a lot of error and craziness associated with that term. And I, I should mention that Calvary Chapel has a long history of distancing itself from that kind of error when it creeps into Calvary Chapel. Pastor Chuck wrote a book back in the day called Charisma Versus Charismania talking about the proper use of the spiritual gifts. If you're familiar with the Vineyard Churches, was originally part of Calvary Chapel, and they got into some excesses regarding the Holy Spirit, and there was a split. It wasn't particularly angry or mean, but there was a, a separation that happened because we were not about to be about all that. But again, in line with the Bible, we believe in the present work of the Holy Spirit today. What do I mean? There is no substantial difference between how the Holy Spirit operates now compared to how he did in the book of Acts. There's not apostles today like Peter. and Yes, okay. But we're living under that same era of church history. We just saw it in Acts chapter 2. He said, This promise, the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, is for you and your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God will call to himself. So, Peter is saying, This work of the Holy Spirit, which you observe today, will continue for everyone whom God is going to save, which certainly includes you and me. We believe that the Holy Spirit seals and indwells every believer at salvation. If you say the Holy Spirit's not in me, well, Romans 8 9 says, If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't have Christ. The indwelling, the Holy Spirit comes in and begins to change you. You've experienced this if you've been saved for a while. But we also believe in what is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this is a, a terminology that can get confusing. But we try to stick with what the Bible, how the Bible lays it out. So when the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit coming upon somebody or filling somebody, usually for a specific purpose like evangelism or for a great moment of personal transformation, We see in Acts chapter 4 that the apostles had already had the Holy Spirit fill them when Jesus breathed on them. He said, receive the Holy Spirit, but don't don't leave Jerusalem until you've received the power of the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts chapter 2, tongues of fire, that whole thing. Then in Acts chapter 4, they're praying and they're asking God for help, and the building is shaken, and they're all filled with the Holy Spirit again. So... That's what we would call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And there are those that use that term to mean something else, just as long as we make sure we know what we're talking about. Usually there's not as much disagreement as you might think. We believe that there is a difference between being indwelt by the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit. One of them is once for all, and one of them can happen not only once, but multiple times. For example, in Ephesians 5.18, Paul tells the Ephesians, Be filled with the Holy Spirit an odd thing to say if you can only be filled with the Spirit once at the moment of salvation because he's writing to believers. What's he saying? He says, seek the Holy Spirit's empowering presence at all times. They are connected, of course. But we believe that every person in the church ought to seek the Lord for, a poor term for this is the second blessing. That if you're not fully saved until you've received the power from the Spirit. It's not that. It's a second, third, fourth, fifth, as many times as you need it blessing. The Holy Spirit is inside you if you're a believer. Being filled or empowered with the Spirit is something that happens in the moment to accomplish the work that God has given you to do. As we see in the book of Acts. Right before Paul or Peter or John would do a miracle it would say, John, filled with the Holy Spirit, said. Or Paul, full of the Holy Spirit, began to preach. And we taught a whole series through the book of Acts if you'd like a little more understanding of that. But We believe that The Holy Spirit seals us when we're saved and will fill us continually over the course of our lives. We also believe in the full continuation of the spiritual gifts as outlined in 1 Corinthians 12-14. through What is a spiritual gift? 1 Corinthians 12-7 says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So if the Spirit dwells within you, He's going to manifest. What does that mean? To show Himself. In every Christian, the Holy Spirit wants to empower you for the common good, for the church to be built up and sanctified and edified and strengthened. Every believer has what we call a gift of the Holy Spirit. Or, depending on how you want to define it, multiple gifts of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is working in you. This includes things like teaching, administration, mercy, all the way to things like prophecy and speaking in tongues, and miracles, and so on. We believe in healing, that we ought to come and seek the Lord to be healed. The only boundary the Bible places on these gifts in terms of time is found in 1 Corinthians 13. Because many people will say, oh yes, the gifts of the Spirit, but those ended after the apostles died, or after the Scripture was written. 1 Corinthians 13 actually tells us when these things will pass away. It says, when we see Jesus. Because right now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, we will know even as we are known. That's very clearly talking about heaven. Because we don't know as we are known right now. We still see as in a mirror dimly. So what does this mean? It means, as it says in 1 Corinthians 14:1, we pray actively to receive these gifts. It's not open but cautious. We actively believe we should seek these things. As Paul said, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. It means we also give place for them in our worship services. First Corinthians 14:26, when you come together, everyone has something to offer. Amen. Whether that's a hymn or a tongue or a prophecy or a revelation, which would be something like a dream or a vision, let all things be done, he says. However, we do not let these things keep us from sound doctrine or from orderly proper worship. The last thing Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14:40 is let all things be done decently and in order. And that's what a lot of folks get concerned about when you talk about the Holy Spirit is things will be very disorderly in the name of the Spirit. Now sometimes we've just got to get over being sophisticated and stuffy and let the Holy Spirit do His thing. But you can reach the point, and I don't think this is our church's concern right now, where you allow yourself to be out of control when the fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians 5, is self-control. So we believe in the power of the Spirit, the ongoing power of the Spirit. We also believe in the gifts of the Spirit. And I'm not going into this in any detail. I have before. I gave a full teaching on the gift of tongues not long ago. But I want to say this. We do not believe that any one spiritual gift is essential for salvation. And I'm mainly talking about the gift of tongues here. There are folks say, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. I absolutely abhor and reject that doctrine. It's not true. Bible says that we do not all speak in tongues. specifically says that, actually. We also do not believe that any of these things is always assured, as if you can call down thunder from God whether or not he wants it. Remember, God is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. He speaks. We have conversation. We have relationship with him. Even Paul, the apostle, in 2 Corinthians 12, asked the Lord to heal him, and God said no. Now, you can take that and say, oh, good, now I never have to pray for healing ever again. No, 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 no. It just means you need to recognize that sometimes God knows more than you. Aren't you glad that you didn't get everything you prayed for when you were growing up? Lord, please let, us, please let her fall in love with me so we can be together forever. And a few years later, like, Lord, thank you so much for not answering that prayer. God is wise and we trust him. So Calvary Chapel is a charismatic association. But I will say, if there's something that I pray for For the Calvary Chapel Association, we often fall into the trap of letting this side of things atrophy. The spiritual life of the church atrophies because maybe we're scared and intimidated by it. Or maybe we don't want to be connected with some bad actors. I don't want to be like that guy. I don't want to be like him. To which I always say, if you're afraid to have speaking in tongues in your church because some people abuse it, what about the gift of teaching and preaching? You're still doing that, aren't you? There's all kinds of bad preachers out there. Well, that's different. We've got, to, we've got to reclaim what is true. There you go. That's right. We should set an example for the body of Christ and not be intimidated or afraid or out of control. So that's that. The next one. Let's talk about eschatology, which is the doctrine of last things. So we're talking about end times prophecy here. Last week I gave a lot of the labels. Because they're useful when it's talking about theology. Let's give a few more. Calvary Chapel is dispensational, pre-tribulational, and premillennial in its view of end times prophecy. I'll explain those. Just don't worry. We are broadly dispensational. By that I mean when we do our biblical theology. It's another good example of this. When we do our biblical theology, it's tough for us to land squarely in a certain system. But we certainly fall somewhere under the broad umbrella of what's called dispensationalism. This just means there are stages in God's plan where he has worked out the economy of his plan for the universe. There is not one overarching covenant that he has brought people in and out of. That's the other side of that. It's called covenant theology. It's not heresy, but we certainly would not hold to it. But as I said, broadly, there are some... Levels of dispensationalism that I don't know if that properly explains what the word says as well. The main emphasis for us is that the end times as described in scripture, the great tribulation, the millennial kingdom, things like that. That that is real. It's not symbolic. It's not something that's already happened. But it's something that we believe will actually happen in time and in history. The second great emphasis is that Israel as a nation is distinct from the church. It does not mean there cannot be overlap. But if you study your Bible verse by verse, I don't know that you will ever come to the place where you can say, no more Israel, it's all about the church now. In fact, there are places where the Bible says very plainly, has God rejected his people whom he foreknew, talking about Israel? And Paul says, may it never be. God forbid. The Old Testament says if God could break his covenant with the sun, the moon, and the stars, he'll break his covenant with Israel. And the covenant theologian would say, Yes, but that that covenant has now transformed into the church. And so we're Israel now, and it's really what this is, is we're committed to a, a more or less literal interpretation of biblical prophecy. This does not mean that when the Bible says a dragon with seven heads appeared, that we are expecting a dragon with seven heads to appear on the earth. That's obviously a symbol, but we believe that symbol refers to something real, that there is something real that it is representing we believe that when Israel rejected Jesus and crucified him, they were hardened, like Pharaoh's heart was hardened, until God's plan for the Gentiles is complete. Romans 11 talks about this, especially Romans 11:25. 25. And that time period where God has set Israel aside, he calls, Paul calls it a partial hardening, will end with what we call the rapture, which is a word that means the catching up, the snatching away of the church, which will be followed by seven years of great tribulation. So when we say pre-tribulational rapture, the Bible talks about seven years at the end of history where Satan has his way on the earth. We believe that the rapture, that snatching away, talked about in 1 Thessalonians and elsewhere, will happen before that. I'm not going to get a lot into the reasons why. I'm, I'm more affirming what we believe and We've talked about this all before. The rise of the Antichrist will take place after that. And after those seven years, Jesus Christ will return and establish a 1,000-year kingdom on the earth. So, millennial. We believe that we are living in the pre-1,000-year kingdom. The 1,000-year kingdom does not represent the church. It is not something that we have to make happen. It's something that Jesus Christ will return and violently establish in righteousness. After which, the book of Revelation says Satan's final rebellion will be crushed The final judgment will come, and a new creation will be made, a new heaven and a new earth. So, dispensational, we believe that there are stages in God's plan. Most importantly, Israel and the church are distinct from one another. We are pre-tribulational, meaning we believe the rapture will happen before the seven years of judgment on the world. And we are premillennial, meaning we believe that that is going to happen later. It is not already happened or happening now. Most of this is just based on reading the Bible plainly. I have found in most cases that when somebody is not pre-trib or or has a different view, they spend a lot of time explaining symbols and allegory and this doesn't mean what it seems to say. And I I think that's not a great way of doing Bible study. I think you need to let the text say what it means because all of the prophecies of Jesus' first coming were fulfilled literally. Prophet Micah said he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Now, you could say that just means that he's going to be like David, his father. But Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So we should believe that those prophecies, which are admittedly confusing to understand, will be fulfilled literally. Some disagree, and in most cases, that is fine. Which is why Calvary Chapel is marked often by an eagerness for the return of the Lord. We're excited. We believe there's nothing else prophetically that has to happen before Jesus Christ comes and takes up his church. We sing that song, It Might Be Today, because we believe that. Which should be tempered by humility and recognizing that these things are among the most difficult parts of Scripture to interpret and understand. And I will always caution us against sensationalism, which means everything that comes in the news somehow fits in the prophecy of the Bible somewhere. Most of the time, let's say it this way, almost every time, that is not the case. Israel returning to the land, okay, that's significant. A new president duly elected every four years, that's not that significant, right? You understand me? And it's okay for us to, as I've said before, raise our eyebrows at things. You know, a nation that the Bible talks about. Is somehow gaining power again? No, well, we kind of raise our eyebrows, but we, we don't then say batten down the hatches and you know buy gold because you know the end is coming. We look at what the Bible says, we hold to that, and we do what Jesus said, which is be ready. Because you don't know when it's coming. It's gonna come like a thief in the night. Now, this next one is important, almost more important than the other ones I've discussed. And I don't know that. Back in the day, this needed to be established as a Calvary Chapel distinctive. But today, it certainly does. And I think this is one of the most serious points I'm about to discuss here, which is complementarianism. Long word. Talking about men and women. Complement, like we complement one another. We work together well, differently, yet in harmony. We hold to a complementarian view of sex, gender, and marriage. Not, the opposite of that would be, an egalitarian view view which means we are all the same. We believe in real, dis- real differences working together in harmony. So let's make a couple broad statements here. First of all, male and female are real categories that God has created. Something we might not have had to say not too long ago but it's important for us to say it. Genesis 1.27 says that in the beginning God made the male and female. Secondly, your gender identity is always to morally align with your biological sex. We don't believe there is a distinction between those two things, except for the point of discussion. There's a difference between being male and being a man, as we say. But those things should always be correlated. First Corinthians 11.14 talks a lot about that. He says, when a man grows long hair like a woman, it's disgraceful for him. He's saying in the church, we're not going to be gender bending. Number three. Marriage is between a man and a woman, exclusively and forever. Genesis 2.24, God brought them together. He said, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Fourth, all sexuality, including homosexuality, is out of bounds. If it is not between a man and a woman in their marriage relationship, Your sexuality is off-limits. And that is such a horrible thing to say in 2021 America. But it's what the Bible teaches. This excludes all deviant sexuality, including fornication, sex before marriage. Cohabitation, living together without being married. Homosexuality, transgenderism polyamory, which is this new thing of we're just going to live in one constant orgy all the time. It is not the way the Bible said it. And most cases of divorce and polygamy. The Bible gives a few very rare exceptions to those last two in the Bible. But Jesus makes it very clear that's not the way God made it. But you live in a sinful world and sometimes this is the way things go. Let me just read what Jesus said about this in Mark chapter 10. He was answering a question about divorce, but this answers so many questions that we have. Mark 10, 6-9. He said, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So don't let anybody tell you that Jesus had nothing to say about sexuality. He said it all right there. He affirmed everything the Old Testament taught about it, which is what he did in a lot of cases, isn't it? We believe that just as in the Trinity there is an equality of value but a distinction of role, a harmonious hierarchy, I like to call it, there ought to be the same between men and women. And there are two specific realms where the Bible is unambiguous. First of all, a wife is to submit to her husband, and the husband is to love his wife. Ephesians 5.33 says that. That a woman is to submit to her husband like the church submits to Christ. In everything, it says. There's another thing we chafe against. But it says that men are supposed to love their wives like Christ loved the church, who died on the cross to rescue and save his bride. And second, in the church, there is to be male leadership and female submission. 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Why, Paul? He says, because Adam was created first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but Eve was. Now, the other next question becomes, well, what about society? What about a woman president? What about a woman school board member? You know, the Bible doesn't talk about that. And I, I'm more than comfortable just to lean into what the Bible does say very clearly. That in the, in the church and in marriage, that it is to be male leadership and female submission. This might be the most controversial set of doctrines that we hold. Isn't that something? And they are exactly that. These are doctrines. These are not opinions. The world hates this. The world wants to undermine this. Though sometimes the world could care less that we believe that people are dying and go to hell, the fact that we're telling women to submit to their husbands. They want to undermine it. But in Calvary Chapel, we have done a very good job of holding the line on this and I'm very proud to be a part of it for that reason. And we will continue to do so. We're not going to ordain women, for example. We're certainly not going to permit any kind of homosexual marriage in this church. Very quickly to the end here, let's talk about the ordinances of the church. You might call them the sacraments of the church, but we do not believe in sacramentalism, so we use the term ordinances. This is, we do not believe that there is a special grace or help towards salvation that you receive from the rituals of the church. That salvation is by grace through faith alone that Jesus' work on the cross was enough. But there are two ordinances that Christ gave us. You have baptism, which is the initiation rite of the church. It's important, it's necessary, but it's not efficacious. If you're on your way to your baptism, you've already been saved, you, you, know, you prayed and asked Jesus into your heart, but you're driving to your baptism and you get hit by a car, you're not going to get kept out of heaven because you didn't make it to your baptism. You understand? Nor can you be baptized and then go live like a total reprobate and expect, that's okay, I got baptized. What's Jesus going to do? You know. The second one is communion, also called the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist is another term. Eucharist means Thanksgiving. We use the term communion. It's a term Paul uses. This is the memorial of the church. It's how we remember what Christ has done, just as how Passover, which gave rise to communion, was how they remembered what the Lord had done in Egypt. It is holy, And it is necessary, but it is not, again, efficacious. You're not somehow getting more saved as you take communion. Oh, I want to be forgiven. I better go take communion again. No, no, no. The Bible says all you need to do is ask. Because Jesus has already made the sacrifice. We're remembering that. However, I do not want to be flippant about them. Because there is certainly a mysterious spiritual side to these things. And it's not very well explained in Scripture, I must say. It does tell us that we ought not to do these things lightly or neglect them as if they were unimportant. But I remember having a conversation uh, with one of you here, and I said, it's much easier to say what it's not, what baptism does not do, what communion does not do, than to have a positive statement. So I always want to be careful to attach too much mystical power, so to speak, to these things, although the Bible does come out and say, don't take communion lightly. That's why God struck some of you all sick, because you were showing up drunk to communion. That doesn't happen here, so hopefully we don't have to worry about that. Amen. So that, that, that's some of our distinctive doctrines. What we believe about soteriology, Calvinism, and Arminianism. We're somewhere in the middle. Hopefully we have the best of both worlds. Pneumatology. We believe in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, including his spiritual gifts. Eschatology. We're looking for the rapture. We believe that the Lord is going to redeem his people Israel one day. We're complementarians. We hold to the biblical view of the distinction between men and women and the roles that they play. And we also believe in the ordinances of the church without believing that they have any kind of efficacious power. Now, these things are important, and they take up most of our time. (laughs) Everybody's kind of good on the gospel, so we always want to talk about these things. But these are ultimately non-essential for salvation. That is not to say they're not important and that I will not defend all of them, especially the last one with every last ounce of my breath. But I believe the point here is to stay biblical. Stand on what the Word of God says. and If you're not sure if the Word of God says it, if you're less sure of your interpretation, then maybe be less loud in your declamation of those who disagree with you. Does that make sense? I will insist on these things because this is what we believe. But ultimately, remember, it is the gospel. Salvation by grace through faith. Belief in Jesus Christ that will make or break your soul.